Philippians 3:18 through chapter 4 verse 1. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 
The second choice is to syncretize these two kingdoms. This is the idea that a person can stay true to both authorities while giving equal credence to each one. In an attempt to to make friends and influence people, one finds himself having to compromise one way or the other. No one can serve two masters. Unfortunately, what typically happens is that God's word plays second fiddle to the cultural norms. People who go this route cave to the pressures of this world and end up placing God underneath culture. If the goal is friendship and not God's glory, then the world will always decide what is and isn't acceptable. A third choice that many Christians choose today is to influence culture. Here, a person, they'll hold fast to God's authority, but then they try to impose that authority onto the world. A common example of this can be seen on the religious right. This group is always trying to get the right people elected and the right laws passed. Yet this doesn't just take place in politics. The the whole Christian media empire is an effort to conform culture to God's will. So the, the Christian music you hear on the radio or those Christian movies that you watch, they are subtle attempts to influence this world. The problem with these efforts to influence culture is that they, they tend to create more divisiveness than converts. To the rest of the world, it feels like Christianity is being shoved down their throats and they typically reject it. Finally, there is a way that Paul describes for us in his word, in the passage that we read today. Christians can stand firm in the Lord. But before we dig into the, our text, let's take a look back at where we have been. For we have come to the, the end of a long section that began in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul had been teaching the brothers and sisters in Philippi how to conduct themselves as citizens worthy of the gospel and to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. To do so, they were to be, they were to be unified, putting away their selfish ambitions and putting on the mind of Christ, who humbled himself by becoming a man and being obedient to the point of death. In a similar fashion, they too should not shrink back from persecution. Rather, they should proclaim the gospel without complaint or argument. For this was God's way of sanctifying them. And they shouldn't rely on the outside help from men such as Timothy and Paul, for they already had honorable men Men of courage within their ranks. Men such as Epaphroditus. And they shouldn't compromise the truth of the gospel either in order to avoid persecution. They should watch out for those dogs, the Judaizers, who offered a syncretistic version of Jesus, one that the culture would accept. Instead, they should hold to the truth about who Christ is and what he has done. And they should share in his sufferings, putting their focus on their future hope, which is the resurrection from the dead. They needed to follow Paul's example, 
forgetting what is behind and pressing forward towards the goal. All of this leads up to our passage for today, beginning in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For as, for as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. First thing to notice here is the intensity and fervor of Paul's words. Paul spoke this message often. It was so important that it was worth repeating. And now he was saying it again with tears. Though these words are a warning, Paul shared that he had great sadness. For these enemies of the cross of Christ, they are ignorant to their eternal fate. They believe they are on the right side of history, yet their destiny is destruction. So who exactly are these enemies of the cross? If we take these two verses by themselves, these men seem to be very worldly people, <coughs> indulging in fleshly desires. They sound like antinomians, those who are against the law. Yet the greater context of this letter suggests otherwise. If they are truly antinomians, they seem to come out of nowhere and for no purpose. It disrupts the flow of Paul's argument. For Paul had just warned about the Judaizers, those coming from the circumcision party. Yet the Judaizers, they were a legalistic group, not antinomians. They claim to worship Jesus, but despise the message that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were certainly not antinomians. So what are we to do with these verses? If Paul was still warning about the circumcision party, how can a legalistic group like that be described in such antinomian language? Remember, antinomian means against the law. If you recall from last week, Paul had been making use of irony to drive home his point about perfectionism. He said that all those who are perfect should realize that they are not perfect. It is my contention and the contention of many theologians out there that Paul is employing the same use of irony here. Let's break down this passage and see what we can discover. Paul described these enemies of the cross in four ways. First, their destiny is destruction. They are on a path that leads to eternal damnation. This is in agreement with Paul's letter to the Galatians concerning the Judaizers. Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9 says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. 
their destiny is destruction. Second, their God is their stomach. This reflects their preoccupation with Jewish dietary laws. When the council at Jerusalem dealt with this challenge, there were some from the circumcision party there to debate. Listen to their words in Acts 15, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The law of Moses included these dietary laws. Their God is their stomach. Third, their glory is in their shame. Paul is most likely referring to their obsession with the male genitalia. What should be covered in shame, they focused upon. Circumcision was at the heart of their teaching. Their glory is in their shame. Finally, their mind is on earthly things. They were still living in these earthly practices, which were only a shadow of the greater realities in heaven. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Instead of focusing so much on cutting their own flesh, they should have been focusing on the circumcision of the heart that is done by the Holy Spirit. Their mind is on earthly things. So once again, we see Paul used irony to drive home his message. He used antinomian language to show the futility of their legalistic practices. As they attempted to fulfill the law, their hearts were really playing to their own worldly egos. Legalism had become licentiousness. Yet Paul weeps for their souls. For though they claimed Jesus as their own, they were truly enemies of the cross. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In contrast to the enemies of the cross, Paul now encourages his brothers and sisters in Philippi with the hope that awaits them as citizens of heaven. Paul has now come full circle in his argument, which began with how to behave as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. One's behavior should be in line with the kingdom they belong to. Some of the believers were Roman citizens, and they would have known about both the, the responsibilities and the privileges that came along with such a distinction. Where Paul began his dialogue with the responsibilities, behave as citizens, he now ends with the privileges, the first of which is having a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Rome, 
the title of Savior was commonly attributed to Caesar. Often worshipped as a god, this emperor was thought to have brought peace to the kingdom through his rule. They called it Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Caesar was the one who saved his people from their enemies. Paul now spoke of a Savior greater than any earthly king. Not only had Jesus rescued his people from their sins, but he had also promised to return from heaven one day to announce that final victory when the true benefits of heavenly citizenship would be fully on display. The enemies of the cross will be put down. Those belonging to the kingdom will rejoice because their king has returned. The power of Christ will be made known to all. There's no blade that can strike him. There's no arrow that can pierce him. Everything and everyone will bend the knee to his will. He will have dominion over all. That is why when Paul began his, this letter, he said this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus finishes the job. On the day of Christ, the children of God will be made whole including their lowly bodies. This body that you are now in, it is limited. Sin has its way in your flesh, and death lurks closer and closer each day. But Jesus will transform that which has been corrupted by sin into something glorious. Your new body will be made in his image. Glorification. Do you remember that term from last week? It's that final state when you will be made perfect in Christ. No more sin. No more death. No more suffering. You won't just be a spirit or a ghost. You will have physical flesh and bones. And you won't be an angel, as some suggest. You will be human. In fact, you will be more human than you had, have ever been. Paul says that your body will be like Christ's glorious body. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. How he is in his humanity, you will soon be. This is what Paul encouraged the Philippians to focus upon. Why? So that they might stand firm. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Notice Paul's comforting words to the ones he cares for. You whom I love. You whom I long for. My joy. My crown. 
Just as he shed tears for those who are perishing, so too he shows true affection for those who held to such a great hope. Paul loved them as a brother would love his siblings. When he, when he thought of them, his heart was filled with joy. And just as a victorious athlete would receive a wreath from Caesar to crown his head, the people from this church were Paul's crown. For it was Jesus, his king, who gave him that champion's wreath, that crown that was this church family. He continued to stop by saying, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. How are they to stand firm? What is he referring to when he says the word that? For one, it's the immediate context of the letter, remembering that their citizenship is in heaven. But really, he is recalling the whole argument, starting in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27. Being unified, imitating the humility seen in Christ, holding out the word of life as God sanctifies them through trials, relying on the men that God had put in, in their midst, men such as Epaphroditus, and not taking the easy path of the Judaizers, but staying true to the gospel message. Forgetting what is behind, that old life that they had before Christ called them, and focusing on the prize, longing for Christ's return. This call to stand firm was a military command. They were to be like Roman soldiers who never retreated in battle. And as you saw when the, the children demonstrated earlier with the shields, these warriors, they worked as a unit. They would line up in the rows, shield and spear and hand. In the front row, they would kneel down, putting their shields in front of them, offering the protection below. And the second row of soldiers, they'd put their shields chest high in front of the head of that group in front of them, protecting their heads and torso. And the row behind them, that third row, would lift their shields way up high, protecting the head and chest of the soldiers in front of them. Each soldier was commanded to stand firm, not for their own sake, but for the sake of their brother. They were one unit, contending as one man. Paul desired the same unity for his brothers and sisters in Philippi. They had the same hope and the same Savior, and they were citizens of the same kingdom. This is why Paul desired unity. For, the, for there were enemies of the cross lurking about. Brothers and sisters, as citizens of heaven, you are living in two kingdoms. When those opposing kingdoms, when they when they, when they collide with one another, how will you handle it? Will you isolate yourself from the world, hoping that persecution doesn't come knocking at your door? Will you syncretize, conforming your beliefs to the culture's demands? 
Will you wage the war against culture, putting your hope in politics, in Christian media? Or will you do as Paul has written here and stand firm, living in unity with one another, holding on to the truth of the gospel as you await Christ's return? Will you make God your authority and his glory your priority? Will you stand firm? Not only for your sake, but for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you do this, if you put your hope in Christ's return and the glory to come, notice what Paul says, how you are to stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. You will not be alone. You had one who stood firm for you. Look at our first scripture reading from today, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As a time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Christ set his face like flint towards his death. He knew what would happen to him if he entered that city. The cross was waiting for him. But he did not turn to the right or to the left. He did not isolate himself from the world, nor did he conform his teaching, making it more appealing to the masses. And he did not look to transform culture by political means or through some catchy tune. No. He stood firm. He did all of this for you. He went to the cross to die for your sins. He paid the penalty that you could not. The wrath of God was poured out upon him for your salvation. That is why he is called Savior. He looked not to the tribulation around him, Rather, he gazed upon that future glory. Dear friends, if you believe that message and repent of your sins, then you are a true citizen of heaven. You are in God's family. Jesus calls you his brother, his sister. You are the one whom he loves and whom he longs for. You are his joy and his crown. Stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Let us pray. Father, we confess that too often we are like the isolationists who want to run from trouble rather than face it head on. And too often we are like those who conform to the patterns of this world, giving in to cultural pressures around us. And too often we, we seek worldly means to change our culture instead of relying upon you. Lord, make us citizens of your kingdom. Help us to stand firm in you. May we look to your son and the sacrifice he made on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. 
And may you fill us with your Holy Spirit, helping us to be resolute in our times of distress. May we be bold witnesses of your gospel message to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.